You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Off to rather a bad start, I'm afraid. In that, in my haste to provide myself with a little security blanket, I wrote everything down on a little card so small that I cannot read it. I brought the wrong Bible. (laughs) But the scripture that I would like to make reference to as an introduction is found in the book of Ecclesiastes, first chapter, first nine verses. I I shan't read it. I haven't got it to read. Some of you this morning may require a little inspiration at this awkward hour. And so I want you to behold standing before you a man that is fighting down, unsuccessfully, you will soon find out, fighting down three very strong temptations. I say uh, strong, not irresistible, to encourage those of you who in years, decades to come are speaking from this sacred place, you will take me as a bad example, because I will succumb to one of these three or two, you know, as, as we proceed. The first temptation that one feels as one approaches the sacred dias here is the nearly overwhelming temptation to be overcome with a sense of history. I think the more so, you know, we have these august figures glaring down on us. Over there. And then I could indulge in that kind of nostalgic confusion without being accused of unprofessional sentimentality. After all, my subject is, I'll give it away, my subject is faith and history, I was going to mention a little later, but you know it's faith and history, so it's obviously something to do with the past. So, I could, you know, discharge the load of, of uh, examples, illustrations that I have fortified myself with and just stay right at this point, and you wouldn't, uh, probably wouldn't feel aggrieved. All kinds of, all kinds of illustrious people crowd to my mind here, ghosts, people that have been here, it's, um, I'll just uh, cut through this, uh, an interesting little part of my introduction by saying that uh, there's been an incredible, an incredible range of persons speak from right here, and I am, well, I just, William Jennings Bryan, for instance, was one of them, Commissioner Brangle of the Salvation Army, we've had just an incredible, literally incredible range of minds and spirits speaking from this place, and I am wholly, wholly unworthy to follow them, the more so because there are people in my own division that would be much uh, better suited, much better qualified to speak to the subject than I am. I say that partly, you know, to prevent your saying it later. (laughs) The second temptation that I am experiencing right now, and this one is literally irresistible. The stoutest heart cannot fight this one down. And that is to pass some clever little remark about what it was like when I was sitting out there. Actually, I was sitting over there, and I don't think the world has changed enough in three days to make it worth my while comment on it. I do have some interesting illustrations on the subject of sitting in the faculty section, but I, <laughs> I, I shan't share those this morning. And the third temptation is the strongest of all. 
And that is the temptation, very distinct temptation, very sharp temptation, to faint. <laughs> I, my friend and colleague, Professor Fisher, is chairman of the chapel committee, but he was not my friend this week, or at least he didn't behave entirely in the posture of a friend. We look at the chapel lineup to see that my presence is something of an anticlimax. Dr. Henry on Tuesday, Dr. Kimmel on Thursday, and uh, here I am on Saturday. <laughs> Any number of analogies spring to mind. It's kind of like following the Summer Olympics with a water balloon fight. Enough of this. <laughs> Onward to the topic. My topic is faith and history. And before I define my terms, which you must do when you're dealing with something like faith and history, I, I hope you'll forgive me if I'm permitted to introduce a brief autobiographical remark. Generally, I find subjective remarks used out of place. But in a case like this, it's kind of subject, as I hope to develop, but you'll see that subjective remarks are, are unavoidable. It is, in fact, a subjective experience we're going to talk about, a subjective phenomenon. I was literally, literally saved in the midst of my doctoral program. Saved in the midst of it. So, I had a personal experience that helped to illuminate in my own life a very subject that I'm going to speak about. Well, faith. What is faith? This is rather ambitious, isn't it? But what is faith? What is history? What is life? What is faith? Faith is, my own definition, is that which cannot be demonstrated, now it can be sustained, but it cannot be demonstrated objectively. It cannot be demonstrated objectively, and it's that to which we owe the ultimate responsibility. Oh, Picasso, Pablo Picasso said that art is my life. Art is my life. Art was his faith. That was the thing to which he paid or owed the ultimate responsibility. My sister had a uh, professor out in California State College uh, cheaper, cheaper, I've heard of it. And uh, she went and asked him a question. She uh, challenged his, uh, said something about Jackson. And she went up and asked him, well, Professor, you know, uh, there are others who have different views on Jackson. He said, young woman, I am Andrew Jackson. So, you know, <laughs> there are those whose faith is not entirely religious faith. But nevertheless, as we define it, it is that which cannot be demonstrated objectively, and it is that to which we pay the ultimate uh, responsibility. History is the study of man's course upon this planet since the development of writing. Now, that's rather broad, obviously. I can only narrow it down by distinguishing it from other disciplines, such as it can be, I think, distinguished from the discipline of archaeology, paleontology, zoology, idle speculation. But still, we are dealing with a very broad topic. We're dealing with man's life on this planet for, for 10,000 years. Now, what kind of questions are we going to be able to ask about faith and history as we define them? Well, let me ask one, let me posit one, see where we can go with it. Will the careful and reason and professional study of history as I've defined it, or in the common sense way you may be thinking of history and historical study, that'd be fine. Will then the careful reasoned study of that subject produce uh, metaphysical ideas? Will it produce faith? In other words, can you acquire or will you be given faith from the study of history? Well, most people think so. Most people think so. There have been uh, 
times in history when it's been much more a common idea than it is now. Before World War I, it was a far more common idea than it is now. There were exceptions before World War I, but generally historians before World War I believe that you could acquire, or you would be given, a, uh, a faith in something, some subjective worldview from the study of history, that history demonstrated uh, certain ideas, certain ideals. This idea was very common, as this all, all kinds of examples crowd in mind, but this was, idea was very common in uh, 19th century England. Uh, I, will, I will mention a historian that you've never heard of, deliberately selected for that reason. I'm always embarrassed by challenges. Um, a man named Sir Harry Hamilton Johnson. Uh, I believe I have succeeded in finding someone that none of you have heard of. Sir Harry Hamilton Johnson discovered Uganda and wrote several books about it, as people are wont to do when they discover things, I discovered Uganda. And he wrote, you know, oh, my 15 books on, on tropical Africa. And in this book, Sir Harry Hamilton Johnson, KCMG, demonstrated that history proved, beyond a shadow of a doubt, beyond the possibility of objective challenge, history demonstrates that the white race in general is absolutely destined by the Almighty to rule everybody. And, for, and within the, the general category of white race, we find the more particular Anglo-Saxon leading the van. And as you may by now have guessed, within the, the particularity of the Anglo-Saxon race, the British were destined to rule everybody. Now, he was only talking about black Africans, but Sir Harry was not one to be lightly put down by that kind of obstacle. He extrapolated from his study of Uganda, extended it to West Africa. From there, it was not hard to move to India, South America, Ireland, Scotland, over across the channel, as the British would say, in Germany, a historian by the name of von Treitschke was demonstrating to his own satisfaction, to the satisfaction of the King of, of Prussia, at least, and the Emperor of Germany, that, in fact, Sir Henry Hamilton Johnson was right, that it was the, it was the particular destiny of the Anglo-Saxon race to rule the world. The mistake that Sir Harry made was in putting the wrong subgroup first. The right subgroup would naturally be the German Emperor and his followers, the Prussians. They even drew distinctions. You may not be interested in this, probably not interested in this, but they drew distinctions within Germany. Prussians ruled all the other Germans. Well, now, all this Bancroft, George Bancroft, the American historian, felt that history demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that God would have us expand every time to the West Coast and beyond, to Hawaii, to China. The great American buffalo is rather an unfavorable animal image, but he likes a great buffalo who's going to slake his thirst in the sea of China and wave his tail over London or something. Incredible. Huge, ugly thing. As time passed, I... I there's so many of these, but I don't want to take time with a lot of illustrations. I'll probably be sorry later when I'm done at 25 minutes to 9 that I didn't do that. <laughs> but right now, you know, I'm confidently forward ahead, and we'll come back to this if we've got a little extra time. Um, with the events of the 20th century, and this is the point I'm trying to make, I seriously question, I'll give the point away, I may not be demonstrating it adequately, and I don't want to leave any doubt, so I'll say that these people are all wrong. Now, the 20th century demonstrates, I think, a new kind of historian. One who is not so quick to see the hand of God in history. As a matter of fact, is not so quick to see any meaning in history at all. Not able to extract any idealistic faith or any, any uh, worldview from history. These people, in fact, believe that history demonstrates nothing. 
or at least it will not sustain will not sustain religious faith. Let's let's narrow it down. Uh, oh, huge, huge number of historians believe that. It's the point that comes easily to mind after very hard times, after after a desperate world struggle. Now we have lived through in the United States, of course, the Vietnam War. Oh, this is an old testament. I said the fish. We in the United States have lived through a great cataclysm in the Vietnam War, obviously. And it's had, you know, a sharp effect on our morale. I hardly need to elaborate an obvious point like that. But it does not compare to the shock on the intellectual morale of the world that was occasioned by the rise to power of Adolf Hitler, uh, the, the militarists in Japan, the, uh, Mussolini in Italy, and the, the death camp in World War II. That was one of the real turning points in the history of mankind because it left the, the liberal, forward-looking, progressive faith of so many intellectuals shattered, absolutely shattered. Their faith was simply not ready, could not, it's too fragile. Their faith was too fragile to adjust to that kind of a shock, and they, it collapsed. Now, there are any number of examples, but perhaps the one that you might know, because uh, Dr. Ness used it in uh, 101, I think, the faith of uh, Christianity and History? 101, yeah. Herbert Butterfield, English historian, wrote a book called Christianity and History, and the point he makes, finally, is that... Uh, History will not reflect the Christian faith. In other words, it won't be, it won't be spontaneously produced. Uh, this was a natural enough belief in 1948, very common belief. And actually, I was, a little, I was just going great guns preparing all of this when I discovered that book. I was really shocked. I thought, well, it's so boring, no one would have read it. I was still safe. I could, you know, quote it, no one would know. Then I found out that it had been assigned in class. Hearts sank within me. Three quarters of you probably read it. And this will all, or at least this little part that I've just told you will be kind of, oh well, I wasn't really all that, I didn't really get a lot out of it, Butterfield, I'll tell you that, I'm, I'm willing as a historian to footnote the man in good, in good form, but I didn't get that much out of it. I did enjoy, and I think it proved much more profitable for the purposes of this lecture, uh, a book that he wrote called George III and the Historian, excellent little book, in which he summarizes the different views and this is leading to a transition here. Please, please note how subtly we lead into a transition here. This book, George III and Historians, demonstrates, through the use of a wide range of contemporary and later historians, how people's view, historians' view, of King George III vary with their political views of monarchy, their political views of the American Revolution, their political views of uh, the right and left in, in modern British politics, or when it was written in the mid-1950s. Uh, so that the, the King George III, on the one hand, appears, you know, to be the sainted patriot king. And on the other hand, if you read someone like, um, well, Bancroft, you might be George Bancroft, you find that George III was a, a blubbering moron who was the incapable of the least decision without the, the help of his discreditable, dishonest, uh, evil-minded counselors. But I will assume, you know, it's always safe, uh, good, good liberal intellectual historians, well, someplace in the middle is the truth. But the point is, that no one could appreciate what George III was from reading one of these books, because they were very slanted. Now, do these people draw this picture of King George III from an objective reading of his documents, or do they carry to the page of his documents, or the page of his diary, or the page of the, of the dispatches that he wrote, the Lord North wrote, do they not carry to it a very sharp, harsh, prefixed view on monarchy, and on George III, and on Germany, and on fat people, for that matter? Of course they do. 
Now, I want to give you a quote, and I don't want you to misunderstand it. Let me give you a quote from a man named Charles Beard. Now, this is not the Charles Beard of American history. This is the Charles Beard who wrote at, uh, at Oxford, I believe, in the late 19th century, 1881. He wrote a book called The Reformation, which is an intellectual study of the, of the uh, Reformation in England. And he has a little background in, in uh, Europe. And he says, Beard has a quote in that book, in which he says that history, like scripture, now, I don't want you to misunderstand this. History, like scripture, will reflect in sacred authority any prejudice that is carried to it. Now, that is largely true. Uh, this isn't the place to discuss the, the, the basis of denominationalism, which I'm not really qualified to speak about the basis of, of denominationalism, except in, in the historic sense. But obviously, the same scripture is somehow, somehow supporting uh, Irish Catholic cardinals and Jehovah's Witnesses. The same scriptures are somehow supporting what we would think of as a rather remarkable divergence of opinion. The reason being that partially, partially, now that you can't carry this as far as Beard did because he was far more secular minded than we are, but partially at least, I, I, I need to elaborate, the script, scriptures will reflect the prejudice we carry to it. Well, whether that's true or not, to, to, a, to a really complete degree with scripture, I wouldn't, I wouldn't share the comment. But it is totally true. It is unquestionably true with history. History will reflect whatever ideas are carried to it. Now, this is obvious, and it shouldn't cause us any great uh, question. I think that it causes evangelicals far more question, far more debate, far more hesitation than it causes uh, liberals. All right, I hope to demonstrate that a little bit later. All right, then history, let's say, let's, let's make it a little bit more concrete. History will not demonstrate, for instance, the hand of God, unless the person who's reading history is one who is already convinced, or capable of being convinced, or predisposed to be convinced, that God works through human agency in a regular and predictable way. If you do not believe that, if you cannot be convinced of that, then history will not demonstrate it. Um, on the other hand, on the other hand, um, history will demonstrate quite adequately the total absence of higher meaning, the total absence of ideals, the total absence of, of an of a ultimate, infinite, universal purpose, the human existence of someone who already is predisposed to accept that conclusion, having in fact, in that case at least, already accepted that conclusion. The same body of facts, and we'll put it in quotes, the same body of objective facts, will have these diametrically opposed different effects, diametrically opposed different effects in different minds. So obviously, there must be something in history, the writing of history, the reading of history, the understanding of history, other than simply facts. And I, I don't have time now to discuss the, the whole nature of historical fact. There's a lot of material written on that, believe me, on the nature of historical fact, whether, you know, how do we get our facts. And it's a very interesting uh, philosophical problem involved in the, in the selection of facts, which is itself, of course, part of the preconceived ideas that we carry to it. But, as I say, we have I have no time to discuss that. Let me, let me make this point again, because I think it's worth making very clearly. I want to make the few original points I have. They're not even original. But the few clear points that I have, I want to make them over and over again. Burn them into your memory. Okay, now let me say it again. History will not demonstrate the hand of God to persons who are not already predisposed to believe that God works through human agency in a regular and predictable way. It simply will not. Now, let, let me, having made the point again, let me demonstrate. If that were the case, 
it's this hypothesis that I have just put up and put down, a straw man, were in fact valid, then every historian beyond the age of reason with a normal intelligence would obviously believe that God can be seen working through history. And I guarantee you that is not the case. Uh, we as a, histor as a historical profession, as a, as a professional profession, now I exclude, uh, of course, anyone here, but as a profession, across the board, across the, 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 the public graduate schools, the, the private the Ivy League schools, across our country, across the world, we as a profession, the historical profession, I think are second only to um, political scientists, sociologists, maybe theologians, in our hostility to reveal religion. <laughs> the same string of facts that convinces me or convinces Dr. Ness or Dr. Thacker of the hand of God in history convinces, um, oh, I don't hundreds of names spring to mind. Uh, let's say H.G. Wells. You've all heard of H.G. Wells. Or let's say, um, oh, Will Durant, you know, the civilization, 15 volumes, anyone civilization. The same group of facts convince these people of the exact opposite of the social gospel without any gospel at all. Now, let me demonstrate further by saying that I could produce for you a book of facts, and it would, I could tell you that it was a book of facts from which Lenin or Adolf Hitler and uh, Franz Kafka, for instance, extracted their points of view, and you would know in your own heart, from what I've said in this common sense and exposure to these men would tell you, that that same book of facts, say it was this, say this were a book of facts. Well, it is a book of facts, but I say it was a book of historical facts. Well, it is a book of historical facts. <laughs> well, you know what I mean, it was a secular book, a catalog of, of secular facts. You would know in your heart that this exact same book would produce rather different conclusions in the mind, say, of, of Dr. Kinlaw, or Dr. Thacker, or uh, Dr. Ness, or myself. I hope you would, hope you would conclude that. Well, then, where are we at? Where are we at? History does not produce faith. History reflects faith. History does not produce faith. History reflects faith. I now see, by the way, from looking at the old clock on the wall, that my problem is going to be exactly the opposite. I will have to cast overboard all of my illustrations to be done in 10 minutes. Amazing how that clock spins around. I, you know, I was hoping that they would take 20 minutes with a hymn and a now, I see that the time goes faster than you think, especially when you waste some commenting on it. <laughs> now, that I think about that, well, I think that, in my own experience, the fact that history reflects faith and does not produce it has been best exemplified by the best historians, of which I am most notably not one, the best historians in the past, the best historians uh, in the present, I mean, I hadn't graduate school, at least I assume they're all still alive, were men of real faith. Now, I'll illustrate that when I get to the point again, but I want to make it now so that you understand that there are objective references for all this. I'm not just making this up. Uh, there is living proof that history only reflects faith and that the best historians are men of faith. Now, they're not necessarily men of the Christian faith. Put that out of their mind. But I haven't defined faith in such a way that it's confined to the Gospels. I have defined faith so that it is a wholehearted reliance in some metaphysical idea that cannot be demonstrated objectively, or, or as uh, another point, as uh, 
um, the Egyptologist uh, in the speech, he said, it does not appeal to the senses. It cannot be verified by the, by the five senses. It's not necessarily not real. It's simply not demonstrable. You can sustain it, but you cannot demonstrate it. Now, that's the definition of faith. All right, now, this being the case, where are we at? We have been asking the wrong question. When you are discussing the connection or the relationship between faith and history, then you do not have to reconcile differences. You do not have to overcome obstacles. What you have to do is demonstrate the nature of the connection, and there is always a connection. The historian can either compartmentalize his faith away, here is my faith, and here is my history, and never the twain shall meet. My religion and my professional integrity will not stand being mixed together. I have my reputation to think of. Over here, four or five days a week, I will be a professional historian six days a week. Over here, I will be a Christian. Probably, over here, I will also be the resident intellectual in my church, a role dearly beloved by Christian historians. Nothing really like better than to be addressed from the point. Well, what do you think about that professor? Oh, that's good. Right. Yeah, okay. that's good point. Now, well, I hate to think of an illustration on that, but I will, I will refrain because of, of time, which is slipping by. Please notice the passage of time here. Two or three minutes of passage I mentioned it the last time. This problem, this dichotomy, is very old. And here again, historical, historical illusions. I was just listening to a tape by a man named Walterstorff. Nicholas Walterstorff, who, who is a Calvinist philosopher, a Christian Calvinist philosopher, and he pointed out that this, this compartmentalization began with St. Thomas Aquinas. I, would have, I wouldn't have thought that, but he points out very nicely that Thomas Aquinas had all of his facts over here and all of his faith over here, and they led up finally some happy consummation in the world to come. They led to uh, some kind of integration. But that he amassed the thing separately. That is, well, I, I don't know if you can make that point about Aquinas. You can certainly make that point that, uh, that humanism, the great studies of the Renaissance, the beginning here, I mentioned this in class, the beginning of the, of the split between faith and learning. And notice this. Notice this class. Oh, it's not my class. Notice this. It's a, it's a notice this audience, congregation, fellow people. Notice this, that um, it was during the Renaissance that history, professional history began. The study of professional history begins in the Renaissance. Uh, the, the first historians, the latest historians before the Renaissance were back in Greek times. So that you find that the growth of my profession and the growth of this splitting, this dichotomy between faith and learning are, are roughly, roughly coterminous. I was just reading a sermon from Dr. Deming. You all remember Dr. Deming, a distinguished scholar, great, great man of the word. He's a, a, a gentleman in every respect. Well, he, he wrote a sermon several weeks ago and sent it over in which uh, he pointed out that this division that I'm describing took place in the 18th century. That is a reflection of, of 18th century classicism. Well, you can, you can make that point, too. I like to think of it in terms of a little earlier than that, but, uh, you know. The point I make is that a historian can either compartmentalize his faith or, which is much better, he can express it. And I'll now get, uh, illustrate that idea. But one thing I, he cannot do, and that is he cannot subsist without faith. I have never in my entire life known a historian without faith. Never. And neither have you. And neither will you ever know a historian without faith. You will never read one. You will never encounter a historian who does not have some faith. That is, who has not placed his ultimate responsibility in some metaphysical idea which he cannot demonstrate to you objectively. He may believe in it, but he will not be able in the last analysis to demonstrate it objectively to you. 
Now, the best kind of historians, the kind that we should all work towards, those of us who are historians, or any kind of scholars, any kind of learners, is or are those who integrate, who integrate their worldview with their learning, so that their learning is an expression. It's not a demonstration. Aha. Uh-huh. No, it is not a demonstration. This is not didactic. This is not indoctrination. In other words, history is something more than just uh, a source of sermon illustrations. It's a legitimate study in its own right. It's good for that, by the way. Those of you who are thinking of the ministry, history is very good for that. Sermon illustrations are excellent in history. Got a hundred of them myself. But the best kinds of historians are not people who demonstrate their preconceived notions. They are people who express them naturally, without affectation, honestly, openly. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll demonstrate the difference. But let me first say that the best historians I have ever read, like for instance, Edward Gibbon, is a man who expressed, who lived, who saw the whole world through uh, the eyes, if you through the filter of his 18th century deity. Here we are, just reading the third volume of his uh, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire last night to refresh my memory. He's talking about the fall of paganism. And it, it just breathes. It's not trying to demonstrate that the Christian religion is a mistake and that deism is superior. He just, it just breathes that. If you didn't know anything else about the, the decline and fall of Rome but Edward Gibbon, you would come away knowing that Edward Gibbon was a deist and that it, that it has great credence, that it attracted a great mind, that he could demonstrate it for himself in ways that have relevance to you, whether you believe in, hopefully you would not believe in 18th century deism. My own experience, I could name for you four or five historians, I think it will real quickly. Just to show you the range of faith that they had, not one of them was an evangelical. This, of course, was before I came here. This is in graduate school. I had a professor named Raymond J. Sontag in diplomatic history who was a papal knight, knight of St. John, needless to say, a Roman Catholic. I had another professor, William P. Slotman, taught the Austrian Empire, who was a devout Roman Catholic and, incidentally, a monarchist. This is rather unusual these days. I had a professor, Armin Rappaport, who was a Jew, Orthodox Jew. At uh, Wisconsin, I had a man named William Appleman Williams, a superb teacher and a convinced Marxist. That was his faith, his Marxist. Another one, uh, another professor named Avery Craven, who had a number of beliefs that were metaphysical, that is, it could not be done. So one was a belief that the Confederacy in the late Civil War uh, represented the better cause, and it was a lamentable that the Confederacy had lost. He was a genuine believer in uh, the Confederacy, not in states' rights, but in, but in the late Confederacy. And he, didn't express that in class, that would have been, you know, discreditable, but he, he, uh, he knew it, he just sent it. And he was also a Southern Baptist. So now, here's a range, just coincidence, here's a range, not an evangelical law, but here's a range of faith that were expressed. Uh, perhaps I can make this clear, a book called uh, Principles of Art by Collingwood, which you will never, any of you look at, well, some of you may see it in the, in the near future, as a matter of fact. But anyway, uh, this Collingwood is a philosopher of art, and he describes art in the same way that I'm trying to describe history, 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 as an expression, art now, an expression of genuine emotion, genuine and therefore of interest and value to all people, because all, all of us are alike. Any philosophy of history would be based on the commonness, the commonality of human nature, or there would be no value in studying history, I've said this before in class. Well, this Walter Thorpe says, you know, that, that faith is the hub, hub, and, uh, you know, the spokes. It's awful hard to make a wheel with a hand, two hands. <laughs> the faith and, and the spokes are your learning. They grow out of, and that's what spokes don't grow out of a wheel. It's just an illusion. It might be more, you know, the pot and the plant. Oh, I like that. Faith, if faith is the pot and, or, the, or the soil? Yes, I like that. And the plant grows out of that. 
That is really good. I never thought of that. A little plant. Faces apart, and the plant is kisses. Oh, that's good. Well, all right. These people felt no hesitation whatsoever in expressing their worldview, in living their worldview, in seeing all of us, that is myself and all of their students, through the lens, the filter of this worldview. As a matter of fact, class, it is, uh, or people, it is only more, now these days, it wasn't the case 20 years ago, but, but, uh, but uh, recently, now at least, it is largely evangelical who feel this, this reluctance to express their faith in, in their work. It's, it's evangelicals who feel obliged to compartmentalize, who feel that, well, my religion will get in the way of my professional integrity and will harm the reputation of the latter. Pat, pat, pat. And anyway, you know, I'm a good Christian on Sundays and sometimes in the morning, and that's a little prayer, and at night sometimes, and say grateful for meals, and what do you want for nothing? My faith or my, my learning is what's important. This is what I've donated my life to. This is what's important to me. Or my reputation rests on this. Well, that's bad news. Well, if you just give me two more minutes, I'll be done. I promise. I don't know how these things happen to me. I can't even see the face of the clock because the light reflects on it. I think it's designed that way. But at least an alarm clock didn't go off. I should be <laughs> grateful for that. The, re the point I'm making is that the faith of evangelical scholars is weaker than the faith of the average liberal. The faith of evangelical... Now, this is not a big broad... I, I correct that quickly. That's a, a too broad a statement, obviously. In a general way, in a very general way, the faith of evangelical scholars, or historians at least, is weaker. They feel no, they feel no obligation to compartmentalize. And if that's the case, if the faith... I'm going to zoom to the end. If the faith of evangelical scholars is more fragile, if they or you do not feel that your learning or your faith, correct, your faith, cannot sustain any challenge intellectual challenge. If you feel, for instance, that your faith is too fragile to sustain the challenges you might meet, who knows where, in, say, a little seminary or graduate school, then something is seriously wrong. And I, I'm willing to lay the blame partly on ourselves, partly on the faculty. Many of us have not yet in our own lives thought out, prayed out, acted out the very crucial distinction between Christian teaching and teaching in a Christian place. Now, that, that, I haven't time to elaborate on that, but think about it. There is, an, there is an infinitely important distinction between Christian teaching, or teaching in a Christian way, and teaching in a Christian place. Partly that's our fault. Partly the fragility of, of uh, evangelical scholarship's faith is your fault. And it says in, in Mark, ninth chapter of Mark, it says, Lord, help, and then we'll change the pronoun, help our unbelief. 